Amen. What a joy to sing the glories of the gospel of Christ together. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 8. If you're new to the things of the Bible, Daniel is a little more than half of the way through in the Old Testament there. Daniel chapter 8. Just the first half we'll hear read now. Daniel chapter 8. Hear now the word of the living Christ. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down because of transgression. An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all of this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another one Another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. This is the word of the living God. And together we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, let us pray now as we approach the word of Christ. Lord God, now we ask that by your mercy and grace and good gift to us, you would give us aid in both the preaching and the hearing of the word of Christ now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many weeks back, we started a series through the book of Daniel. 
And one of the common themes that we've mentioned as we've walked through the book of Daniel is that we're asking ourselves the question, those of us that live some 2,500 years later, what is it like to be God's people in a land that doesn't honor God's ways? What is it like to be God's people when you're in exile? Remember the book of 1 Peter says that Christians, as it were, are in exile. That the King of kings and Lord of lords rules and reigns over all things, and yet his reign is not yet seen by all with their eyes. And so, we live as a people, really, of two kingdoms. The kingdom of Christ, and yet the kingdom of this common world that is so often against God. Well, as we've journeyed through this book, we saw six chapters. The first six chapters of Daniel are really... History. They tell us the story of several men, one of them named Daniel, that were carted off by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. God had allowed a foreign power to crush his people because they broke covenant with him. And a few of them were carried off. The temple was destroyed. The people crushed. And many of them were carted off to Babylon. And the story continues that Daniel is given favor by God and given position, and he has the very ear of Nebuchadnezzar. Eventually, another king comes. We get to Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. We saw that in the first six chapters, the history of Belshazzar comes to a quick end. He is crushed, and the Persians take over. Now, you might be thinking, where in the Bible is this? Well, this is about 550 years before Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And every bit of this scripture points us in small ways and in large ways to the fact that God is going to make good on his promise to send his son to die for sinners so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So we're in the middle of God making good on that promise. 550 years or so before the face of the glorious Savior is seen in a manger. But you might be thinking, well, I know that the pastor just said the first six books were history, but what he just read a few moments ago really sounds kind of like a dream or a vision. And you would be correct if you're just joining us. Daniel 7 through the end of the book is full of various pictures, visions, and dreams. If you've ever heard anything about the book of the Bible known as Revelation. It's a little bit like that. God gives prophecy through angelic mediators to Daniel in dreams. That's not the way that God speaks today. He's given us his word. It's complete. It's finished. We mine it for his truth and his revelation. But some 500 years plus before Jesus was born, Daniel receives visions. They get us to Jesus. Well, the first vision last week that we saw, our brother mentioned it in the prayer, was that Daniel really sees history from his time all the way to the end of days, all the way to the Antichrist, all the way till Christ comes and is seen and savored for who he really is. But, you know, sometimes we get pictures of the entire thing. And then sometimes we're given pictures of just one small little window of it. That's what we have here. If chapter 7 provides a picture of human history, chapter 8 gives us a few hundred years just shy of Jesus' birth. 
So when we read this particular vision in the word of God, the living and active word, it's not the whole picture of human history. Now it narrows to the time that is going to come a few hundred years after Daniel, but about 100 to 200 years before Christ. Now, boys and girls, when we read this account in Daniel, we see pictures again of animals, of beasts. In this case, we see a ram and we see a male goat. This vision that God has given Daniel is not of real animals. Those animals are pictures. They're symbols for kingdoms, just like they were last week. So as we walk through this today, keep in mind, maybe you're here and this sounds very confusing to you. Someone invited you to church and and you're interested in Jesus, but you heard me read this and you think I have no idea what's going on. The living God created all things. You can read it in the book of Genesis. And very quickly after human beings sinned against him, he gave a promise that one day he would send one, a seed of the woman, and he would bring an end to evil and the ways of Satan. And from Genesis all the way through this book until we meet Jesus, the promise is unfolding. So we're in the middle of part of that promise. And one of God's people gets a vision which reveals some important truths. So let's look at it. Chapter 8, verse 1, we read that Daniel has this vision in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Now you might be thinking to yourself, I thought in chapter 5 Belshazzar was killed. Well, he was. That's the history part. But now we're reading a few of the visions that Daniel got while he was still alive, that pagan king. And notice this is the second vision that he receives. Daniel says in verse 1, after the one that appeared to me the first time. That's the one that we saw last week. All of human history, Christ rules over it and brings God's kingdom to men. Now think about how this particular vision today would ultimately influence Daniel. Way back in Daniel chapter 5, we know what happens to Belshazzar. Within a day, he is stamped out. A handwriting is on the wall, and he dies, and the very next day, a new kingdom takes over. When that happened, Daniel had already received these two visions. The Lord had fortified Daniel with the reality that Christ rules and reigns through these kinds of visions. Daniel tells us where he is. He is... In Shushan, the citadel that is the centerpiece of the kingdom. And he's by the river Uli. This will become important for those of you who really want to read and mine all of the details of Daniel. Because in Daniel, many of the visions occur by rivers. We meet two particular animals. In verses 3 and 4, it's a ram with two horns. In verses 5 and following, it's a male goat with one large horn. Now you might be thinking to yourself, what kingdoms are these? The preacher has said these aren't real animals, they're symbols. What kingdoms are these? Well, if you continue to read the rest of chapter 8, we're told who they are. Verse 20, later on in this chapter, tells us that the ram with two horns is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Turn there with me to verse 20. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Now, again, we mentioned this last week. Scripture interprets scripture. 
So as we sit here mining this vision now with just a few verses in, we realize this has already happened. This is not something to happen in the future. The scripture tells us the ram with two horns is the Medes and the Persians. But we're given details which further help us to see that this really is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Notice the text tells us that one horn is higher than the other. We saw this two times already in chapter two with the silver and in chapter seven last week with the bear. In both places, there seemed to be one that was slightly higher than the other. And this kingdom in verse four is pictured as pushing out westward, northward and southward. Boys and girls, that's a way of saying they're going everywhere. They're going in every direction. Now, who were the Medes and the Persians? Well, they were the next world power after the Babylonians. But before the Greeks and before the Romans, and boys and girls, it would be during the time of the Romans that Jesus would be born, that he would live a perfect life, and that he would die for sinners like you and me. So we meet a ram with two horns. It's clearly the Medes and the Persians. But then in verse 5, we meet a male goat with one large horn. Now, who might that be? Well, if you turn over to verse 21, where Gabriel interprets this vision for Daniel, we are told who the male goat is. Verse 21. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. Now, hopefully, if you've been walking with us through this series, now you're thinking, we've heard this many times. Babylon, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, and comes Jesus. That is the steady refrain of this book. And so we don't need to look further again to try to interpret. Is this a list of kingdoms which will come way at the end of time? And we try to find various cities or countries today that seem to be evil that might fit here. No, the text tells us Daniel's given a vision of all of history and now he's given a vision of the next few hundred years. This vision involves two of the four kingdoms. The Persians, one higher than the other, and the Greeks. But notice we learn something about this male goat, or we should say about the Greek kingdom. It has one large or notable horn between his eyes. Again, boys and girls, this is a picture. This tells us something. This large horn would be this great ruler of Greece. And who was it that was the great ruler of Greece several hundred years before Jesus was born? But after the Persians, a ruler that conquered the Persians and a ruler who, when he dies, his kingdom would be split into four. It's Alexander the Great. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to understand that. The Bible is telling you something here, not just this story, but the Bible is telling you that the living God knows history before it happens. Daniel was written before Alexander the Great was born. And yet here in very clear form, we see what is going to take place. And the scripture does this many times, which ought to encourage our faith when we think about the fact that there are promises that we have yet to see like heaven like the face of our Savior coming to bring us home. The God who promised that the things that 
Daniel sees in his vision what occur is the God who is also going to make occur the promises that we long and cling to. So a ram with two horns, the Medes and the Persians, the Persians higher than the Medes, thus the two horns are a little off kilter. A male goat with one large horn that wipes out the Persians, that would be Alexander the Great. And then verse 8 tells us this, therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he had become strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Alexander the Great died in his mid-30s. He conquered the known world by his late 20s. But the scripture is prophesying by word of a vision that this large horn, the leader of this great male goat, would be broken and the kingdom would be divided into fourths. And that's what happened. At Alexander the Great's death, four different generals got a fourth of his kingdom. One man got Greece. Another man got Asia. Another man got Egypt. And another man got Babylon and Syria. His name was Seleucus. And that's important because we're going to meet one small little horn who's going to come from one of the four. If you keep reading, and I know there are a lot of pictures here, we now focus on one of those four. Look at verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. Now you might be thinking, I've got it. We saw a little horn last week, kind of the Antichrist figure. But this little horn is not the same little horn that we saw last week, unless you consider that he is a type of the little horn of chapter 7 that shows up all throughout history. Rulers. Leaders that hate God and hate his Christ. No, here, this little horn is a wicked ruler. And this wicked ruler's behavior is described in various ways at the end of chapter 9 and following. His kingdom is going to move toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Boys and girls, where do you think the glorious land would be in Daniel's mind? Well, Jerusalem. And it grew up to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now, these are pictures. This is a way of saying this little horn started to attack the people who were God's people. And it cast some of them down. It murdered some of them and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, meaning as high as God himself. And by him, daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now, was there ever a leader who would come from one of Alexander the Great's general's kingdom that would literally enter into Jerusalem and harm God's people and stop sacrifices? Well, yes, yes, there was. Shortly after the Seleucid general would take over a fourth of Greece, other rulers in that part of the region would rise up. And one of them that eventually rose up was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, catch this, boys and girls. His name was Antiochus. He added that last part, Epiphanes. You know what that means? 
God manifest. God is here. I am God. So this little horn comes out of the male goat eventually. And he attacks Jerusalem, ends worship, and does some horrendous things in Jerusalem. And that's where we're at. Now you might be thinking, that's quite a history lesson. But the scripture tells us how to interpret it. We're told who the ram is. We're told who the male goat is. We're told that not by name, but that one will lead this male goat or Greece and rise to great power and then be put down and divided into four. We know history. We know that this happened. That eventually one tiny little wicked man would rise up and literally attack God's temple in Jerusalem and end sacrifices. That's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. Let me read to you a summary. This comes by way of Sinclair Ferguson. This is just a summary of what Antiochus Epiphanes was like and what he did. He did move towards the glorious land. Let me just read what follows. Quote, power hungry. Antiochus sought to expand his dominion to include Palestine. Boys and girls, that's the glorious land. This brought him into conflict with the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt. In Jerusalem, he replaced the high priest with a man of his own choosing. He then invaded Egypt, and while there, a rumor of his death circulated among the Jews, much to their joy. Efforts were made to reinstate the genuine high priest. Antiochus accused the people of rebellion, savagely attacked and sacked Jerusalem, and executed tens of thousands of its inhabitants. 40,000 apparently dying within the space of three days, while others were taken captive. This is about 150 to 200 years before Jesus. But you see, this is exactly what the text said would happen, attacking the host of God, the people of God. He entered the Holy of Holies in the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering, defiled the temple precincts, took the sacred furniture, and established a traitor, Menelaus, as high priest. In 168 BC, when Antiochus' efforts to take Egypt were foiled by the Romans, he again vented his revenge on the Jews. More than 20,000 of his soldiers massacred the Jews assembled for worship on a Sabbath day and committed further atrocities and vandalism. The temple was left without the daily sacrifices, religious practices were non-existent, and a statue of Zeus was placed in the temple, and human sacrifices were made on the altar. Circumcision was forbidden, unclean meat was mandatory fare, and the Sabbath and other feasts were profaned. End quote. So when we meet this little horn that is pictured as raising his fist in God's face, attacking God's people and ending the worship of God's people, and we're told that he will eventually come out of Greece, there is no question who this is historically. It's Antiochus. Now think about Daniel receiving this vision. He's in a foreign land. Part of this vision might be encouraging. There's going to be a temple with sacrifices again. My people are going to be back in the land soon. But think about how devastating this vision would be. But there's going to come a day 
when a little horn is going to end those sacrifices and do horrible things to God's people. And as the text tells us at the end of the chapter, Daniel shudders when he thinks about the immediate future. Now you need to know that this is awful. But later in the book of Daniel, we're told another detail about this same event. Daniel 11, just a few pages over, verse 31. Notice what we're told there. Forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. That's the term for what Antiochus did. The abomination of desolation. False sacrifice. And boys and girls, animals were sacrificed in the temple, but clean animals. For Antiochus to sacrifice a pig would be a very bold statement. Your God and his ways are nothing, is what he's saying. But notice verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Apparently, amidst all the evil that this little horn is going to do a few hundred years after Daniel, some of Daniel's people, God's people, His covenant people are going to be able to be bought and fall away from God's covenant. Well, the text continues. Verses 10 and 11 of our chapter tell us that his carnage reaches the host of heaven. For the old covenant church, the people, don't necessarily think of angels in the sky, but symbolically of God's people, God's host, and to the prince. God is called a prince in verse 11 and in verse 25 of our text. But there is, make no mistake, behind all this earthly carnage, a spiritual battle that's happening. What is it that Antiochus eventually does? We've seen it, but in summary, verses 11 and 12 tells us sacrifices are taken away. Temple worship is removed. The text says in verse 12 that he, quote, casts truth to the ground. One historical note, actually Antiochus literally burned copies of Scripture. It seems that there was likely some agreement by some of the Hebrews, some of the Jews, that could be bought with flattery. They could be drawn away. They could be enticed. Now make no mistake, persecution is hard. And they were being persecuted. Their family members were being slaughtered. And Daniel is seeing all this in a vision. And he's thinking, the glories of my people back in the land with the temple is wonderful, but this is awful. And yet in the vision, part of the vision that comes later, Some of them are drawn away. Antiochus could buy them. The world could buy them. It ought to cause us to ask ourselves the question some 2,500 years later. Friend, what might be drawing you away today? Where might the world be putting flattery in your ears? Are you able to be bought when persecution comes? When pressures to obey God and His righteous law and ways come, 
Boys and girls, sometimes our parents give us warnings. They tell us things. They remind us, hey, be careful of this. Little things like electrical sockets and hot stoves. Don't touch, it'll burn. But sometimes they give us warnings about greater things. Hey, watch out for this sin. Watch out for this pattern in the world. And you might be thinking to yourself, ah, just leave me alone. Let me live my life. And you know where that attitude gets you? If you're not careful, it gets you to the place where you are drawn away from the living God and you are willing to hear the words of the world and to say, it is okay to end the worship of God. Just give me what you're offering me. How long does this happen? One of the most debated verses of Scripture in Daniel, and perhaps the Old Testament, is verse 14 of Daniel chapter 8, because we get a time period. The question comes in the vision, how long will this happen? And we're told in verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, students of Scripture, just a reminder to you, when we have visions that are highly symbolic, Lengths of time don't literally have to be those lengths of time. Some interpret this as 2,300 mornings. Six-ish years. Some see this as a reference, given the context, to morning and evening sacrifices, which would make this about three years. But what is happening during these three years? No worship of God the way that he's prescribed. A false God set up in the temple. No sign of the old covenant is being given. Breaking God's word is happening. Daniel sees all of this. Well, in the second half of this chapter, we meet an angel that will become very important to our ears when we hear the Christmas story, won't we? But we meet for the first time Gabriel, an angel who's actually given a name in Scripture. Look at verse 15. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Now, I have to stop here. A man's voice by the river who commands angels to give the word of God. Let me say that one more time. A man's voice by the banks of a river, which is where all these visions occur, who commands angels To give the very word of God. Who might that voice belong to? Well, older writers like the Puritan Matthew Poole will say it's clearly Jesus. The second person, the Trinity. Newer living day scholars like Alistair Roberts will say it's clearly Jesus. And those of us like myself with much smaller brains, will look at you and say, it's clearly Jesus. We don't meet him by name, but in chapter 7, we saw the Son of Man who has been given dominion and glory and honor. And what do we see in chapter 8 in a smaller section of human history? Who rules and reigns all things? Who gets to say what's going to happen? Who commands the angels of heaven? 
It's the one who eventually put on flesh and came down here and died for your sins, Christian. Well, Gabriel indeed fleshes out this vision. Verse 17. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now you might be thinking, I thought this vision wasn't about the end times. It's not. It's not. We think when we see the word end that suddenly everyone is interested in the end times. But in the Old Testament, often, regularly, usually, the word end means, as one scholar says, the conclusion of an issue, not the end of days. When will the end of this atrocity happen? Not... When is Jesus going to return a second time? When will the millennium be? When will the tribulation be? Is there a rapture? That's what we think when we hear end. That's not what the Old Testament means when it uses the word end. So Gabriel continues. And he said, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. And then he describes the end. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. See, part of Gabriel telling Daniel about the end is to explain the not so distant future. And then we get a few verses of description. Look at verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom. When the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Let us not forget this is a spiritual battle. From the very beginning, Satan has been a hater of God and a hater of God's people. We look at our world even today and we think all these forces, the evil that abounds, and it's true. But make no mistake, Satan, the prince of darkness, is behind it all. But the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. We're bold to sing it, but we do. His rage we can endure. Why? For lo, soon, quickly, it's good as done, his doom is sure. One little word. The word of the one who controls Gabriel's interpretation will also come from the mouth of Christ who will destroy Satan with a word. Well, this king has power, but it's not his own. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. There's that reference to God again. But he shall be broken. I love this. Without human means. Who's going to break this little horn? And ultimately, the one he follows, Satan himself. It's not going to be you or me. It's going to be the living God. 
And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. What lessons then do we get from this more local, more particular part of history? If Daniel 7 gives us the comfort that all throughout history Christ reigns and that he is the one who will bring God's kingdom to men. And this vision clearly just tells us about the time after Daniel, but before Jesus. What lessons are there? Well, quickly, I think we can see at least four things, and I'll just list them, and we're finished. One of the things that Daniel saw in this vision was an attack on worship and an attack on God's word. Remember that in verse 12? Look there with me. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and to cast truth to the ground. I think Daniel shuddered because he saw God's people, God's old covenant people being slaughtered. But I think Daniel also shuddered or fainted and was sick for days because there in this vision is an utter attack on worship and on the very word of God. One of the lessons that I think that we can walk away with, even though this has already occurred by our time, is that we must beware of attack on worship and on God's word. Satan is not finished. And the horns of this world are not finished after Antiochus Epiphanes, who literally, boys and girls, named himself so that he would be worshipped and seen as a god. But what does he do? He seeks to wreck the worship of God's people, to cast God's word down. How high does our society actually hold the word of God today? Are there forces in our world today that seek to attack the worship of God all over this globe? Yes, there are. This little piece of history has occurred there are lessons for us. Beware of attack on worship and on God's word. Secondly, in this little vision, we get a picture of what godless rulers will be like. Just read verses 23 through 26 again this week. Just, just read it one time this week. Fierce features, sinister schemes, destroy fearfully, attack God's holy people. They will be cunning they will destroy many in their prosperity. The second lesson is that we get a picture of what godless rulers are like. Antiochus Epiphanes and every godless ruler until King Jesus comes. A third lesson, and hear me, the next time you're asked to sing a mighty fortress is our God. Hear this from Daniel 8. A third lesson is that we can know 
From this little piece of prophesied history, we can know that Christ controls the spiritual state of his people. He controls the physical state. Every single hair on your head, friend, is numbered. The breath in your lungs, the living Christ is given to you. But here in this vision, there are at least two instances where Christ, the one who's been given all dominion in chapter 7, the one who will bring all things to pass, is seen as bringing about the spiritual good of his people. Verse 14, for instance. This stuff is going to last for 2,300 days. I take that to be about three years. Some others might take it to be closer to six. But then what does verse 14 say? Then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. You know why it was so crucial for the sanctuary to be cleansed? About 150 years before Jesus was born. So that the end of Malachi could be true. That the Son of God would be born... And would very quickly do what? Come into his temple. This wickedness, Daniel, that you see will have an end. This hatred for God and his worship will have an end. The sanctuary shall be cleansed. Paving the way for Christ to come. To die for sinners. And then to be the everlasting temple and place of worship. That those who come through Him, the eternal temple of God, will always be cleansed. But there's a second place in this vision where we get the reality that Christ controls the spiritual states of His people. And that's just verse 16. Who is the voice behind all of this? Who controls the angel to interpret? It's Christ. You may indeed see, not prophetically, not by revelation, but you may indeed see in your time some very difficult days, Christian. But the living Christ, who controls all things by the word of his power, has promised in his covenant to do you good. The last lesson as we close. And this is a practical one. We can continue to live our daily lives knowing God's purpose will stand. Daniel gets this vision. He's sick. He faints. He sees a horrendous reality. And then what does he do? He arises and goes about the king's business. There's a little practical implication for us in that as we close. After everything that Daniel saw, he takes his own circumstances, his own place, the season in which he lives, and he moves forward. Oh, that we would be a people who, with God's truth and with the voice of Christ behind us, rise up in trust and faith in him and move forward. Daniel would rise up a couple hundred years after Daniel was long gone. This prophecy would occur. Eventually, though, Antiochus Epiphanes would be wiped out. The temple would be cleansed. That abominable statue of a Greek god would be ripped down. Sacrifices would continue properly and according to God's word. And then when no one was looking, 
except maybe Simeon and Anna waiting, waiting, waiting. The second person of the Trinity will have put on flesh and he will enter into the temple. And for 30 plus years, he'd live a perfect life, never failing. He would become the substitute for all who ever trust in him. And then in his early 30s, he would be nailed to a cross. And there, as he's nailed to a cross, God, the triune God, pours out the wrath, condemnation and punishment for sin on him. And he takes it and he pays the full penalty for it and he dies. On the third day, he is raised. And the message of all of Scripture is that God is going to make good on his promise, and he has. And what is his chief promise in the entire word of God? That he will send the skull-crushing seed of the woman, the Messiah, Jesus. He'll die for sinners. And on his lips will be words like this. If you come to me, I will never cast you out. A little piece of history that Daniel has given yields great lessons many centuries later. Let's pray. Almighty God, as you give us pictures of the entirety of history and as you give us even more localized pictures, we see again and again that you will not relent in sending your son to die for sinners, to be their substitute. Pray that you, O Lord, might enrich us for the journey ahead. Even as we look at history that's already happened, help us to not fall prey, to not be caught off guard, to be looking and waiting like Daniel for you to fulfill your final promises to us in the face of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.